Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter 20. I hated my wrist comp when it buzzed awake me. I felt deep, white-hot rage. I wanted to destroy it, to destroy all such devices, and to retroactively murder all the people throughout history whose innovations and cleverness had led up to this singular moment in time. It wasn't actually a wake-up alarm, I realized after a few more moments of homicidal thoughts. This held some small interest on its own, so I activated my retinals and looked up the source of my torture. Warning. Network loss. Warning. I had to stare at it for a while before it made anything like sense. Then I had to stare into the darkness of the room until I could remember where I was. That took a long time, but I wasn't panicked about it. I wasn't even confused because that implies an active attempt at understanding. I was content to just lay there and let the stuff seep back on its own. I eventually called out for lights up with a slow fade-in. My time display showed that I'd been asleep for nine hours. It was still dark outside, the armor glass of the large bay window like a black rectangle in the growing illumination of the suite. Ah, the suite. Okay. I looked at the network warning again and then opened it up for details. I certainly hadn't been logged on to anything while asleep, but the dampness sensor's parameters were saved, which meant my rig would automatically check it from time to time. This, in turn, was influenced by a default setting to alert me if or when there was ever a total loss of my saved networks. On stations and ships, such a warning often presaged other problems, and problems in vacuum were never smart to ignore. The dampness sensor was still working. It still sent its little data trickle to the system that monitored household appliances, but the pipe ended there. Connection to the outside world net was now gone. Had the house security discovered the hole and plugged it? But no, the world net itself, which covered the whole planet's face and spilled out into the wider star system, Indeed, into the wider universe, and which nonetheless required an account I didn't have, was gone. I could still see the other house-based nets and the small encrypted ones from the military units outside, but there was now nothing larger for them to talk to. This was disturbing, almost panic-worthy, in fact. Communication and pure data nets were as fundamental and ubiquitous to modern civilized life as indoor plumbing, transportation infrastructures, and power in people's homes. Being cut off from the wider environment was tantamount to living in a cave. It was a sign of severity and deprivation. But, ah, the radio nets would still be up, wouldn't they? A quick check showed that they were. Kingfisher and his ilk now ruled the streams, but as I watched, 
I saw people logging in by twos and threes, and then by the dozens. Frindu Omsiar's capacity was reached in less than two minutes, with all the many anonymous users being bumped out one by one as actual account holders jumped on. So that was that. I had no idea which side controlled the keys to the WorldNet kingdom at the moment, but it seemed a doubtful thing for the government to make do without, which only left the revolution. I pushed myself to my feet when the soft room light was bright enough to navigate and tottered over to the bay window. I stared dully at a pool of white outside, which faded away into a sea of ink. The snowy grounds were illuminated by exterior floods, and though it had stopped precipitating, this barrier of brightness somehow made everything else look all the darker and colder. I thought there might have been a yellow glow off to the east, as if dawn was finally creeping in to push away this long, awful night. But maybe it was only another household like this one, just over the ridge. Once bathroom duty was seen to, so to speak, and after a longer shower than my usual, I carefully sifted through the clothes Stev had brought in earlier. I decided upon a shirt and slacks, carefully tailored to my figure and in matching goldenrod and umber, respectively. The quality of the garments was obvious, but the cut was foreign, like a costume. I didn't even know where people could buy such nice stuff. They sure felt good, though. Stev himself was just approaching when I stepped out into the hall, and you'd have thought the sight of me was something calamitous. The guy set up a sort of low wail and started acting terribly contrite and embarrassed. He babbled and bowed and tried to straighten my shirt sleeves and collar and such. His terrified mumble was getting old now, frankly, and it was way too early in the morning to be touched by nervous strangers, so I batted his hands off and gave him a hard look. This only seemed to agitate the guy further, and he redoubled his bows and even started supplicating with hands together like a prayer. I had no idea what his problem was. I finally broke away and just barreled along the hall, stev at my heels in near panic. We passed a few young maids and other servant types, and they all flung themselves out of the way as if I was a charging bull seeing only red. It was tremendously weird and more than a little upsetting. I just wanted to get away from this crazy little man with his chronic unknowable crises, but I couldn't even yell at him and have it matter. At the top of the stairs, he dashed down past me, beseeching Takir, who had just been crossing through the entrance hall at that moment. By now, the absurdity was at its peak, for Stev stood before the tall, stately butler, gabbling and sweating in what looked like pure terror. The head of domestics, in turn, talked to him calmly and quietly in low speak, assuring him of something that took several repetitions to finally sink in. Eventually, the man relaxed and head bowed in sincere thanks. He turned and bowed at the waist to me as I stood there in confused consternation, then quickly moved off through a doorway out of sight. I just looked at the tall penguin in bewilderment. Our apologies, Mr. Santos. Stev had been given strict instructions by the master to attend to you this morning. I have assured him you are not upset. Of course I'm not. 
I agreed, stepping off the stairs, which put him a head taller than me. Why would I be? And so what if I was? With perfect unflappability, the butler lowered his voice just a bit so as to keep it from carrying further than the two of us. Guests who are so self-reliant are a rarity here. Stev was concerned you had been waiting for him and dressed yourself because you were angered. I dressed myself because I was naked, I replied with undiminished confusion, his explanation having explained nothing. I told you I don't need or want any help like that. I have explained this to him. He does not understand, but is relieved. Again, I apologize for the disturbance and confusion. He stood there, solemn and waiting. The guards at the front door, different from before, I assumed, though they all looked much alike, watched us with what seemed like puerile interest masked as professional focus. Gossip was the lifeblood of a house like this, and I was now providing some. After a moment, I just shook my head and asked Takir if I could get something to eat. He assured me that it would be no problem at all, and started off toward the banquet hall again. Please, is there a table in the kitchen, maybe? Someplace small and out of everybody's way? He considered it for a few seconds, then simply motioned me to follow him. We turned and went off in the same direction that Stev had gone, through a door that slid open as we approached. This led directly to the service side of the house. We followed a wide corridor with open rooms to either side, dedicated to such mundane tasks as laundry and seamstress duties, I waved in thanks to the lady sitting there who looked at me like I had two heads, storage and supplies, generic cleaning and polishing, and a bunch of other stuff. As we passed these by, men and boys with shocked expressions bowed, women and girls with frightened or even irritated frowns curtsied. It was like a more formal but hardly less unsettling repetition of Stev's performance out in the halls. We eventually passed through a small door, and I unexpectedly found myself in the big kitchen of the house. Large double doors that probably went out toward the dining hall were off to one side, and at least two other smaller doors, like the one we'd just used, led to who knew where. There was also a security door to outside in the far wall. Intimidatingly fancy figures in white uniforms moved back and forth, preparing breakfast, or first meal, or middle-of-the-night meal, or whatever they called it. Though certainly not on the order of the banquet of the previous night, or did it count as the same night, it was still no small affair, since there were a number of guests in the house. Activity slowed and then stopped as Takir and I moved into the room, and all eyes were on me. The enormous Estrono was here, round and white in his uniform like a snowman, and he stepped forward. Flanked by men and women in similar garb, he looked confused and a little angry and asked something in low speak. Takir spoke to him, the volume of his voice such that the others could hear his words too. This went on for some time. The gathered domestics, and there were a bunch of them by now, and not all kitchen staff, stood around us in their strange garb from another era. Suddenly they all started babbling, casting me curious glances while yet visibly relaxing. 
Takir concluded his oratory then, and a laugh rippled through the crowd. They broke up and continued on their various ways, in their various tasks, crossing this way and that. One fellow patted me on the shoulder as he went by, in a friendly way. And then Takir and I were just two other faces in the busy crowd of the kitchen. What'd you tell them? I explained that you are neither a nobleman by birth, nor one who apparently aspires to such a station. I said that you are a domestic upon the ship above, and that it was simple chance that brought you here. This has eased their minds considerably. What I do for a living matters that much? Not expressly, but the fact that you earn your living, Mr. De Santos, most certainly does. This was more than I was willing to tackle before my morning coffee, and it nearly was morning now, according to my retinals, with the slow dawn of Barlow just an hour away. There was a room off to the side. Several of the staff had been eating in there at a series of tables when I'd come in with the butler and caused a ruckus. They returned to it now to wolf down their sausages and bowls of boiled buttered grains. Can I sit in there? Ah, oh, that is specifically for the service, I'm afraid. You are like us in some ways, perhaps, but you are not us, sir. I gave him a dirty look, but I don't know if he caught it or even cared. Instead, he led me over behind a tall freezer to a small nook in the back wall where there was a high table with worn benches. It was clean and had a window view of the creeping light. Right behind us was a matronly woman in a kitchen uniform, and she chattered to Takir and shooed him out of her way. She had a thermal carafe and a mug. Another woman, just like her, bustled up with a basket of rich, crusty, oddly reddish bread, as well as a small tray of spreads for it in little metal canisters. They both gave me generous smiles and small head bows, but nothing excessive or embarrassing. Takir just stood by, unreadable, watching the women work. A young man dashed over, bearing a large platter. On it was a high pile of sausages, a huge serving bowl of the same hominy mix I'd seen in the other room, and some vegetables and fruits in little bowls that looked pickled, spiced, and delicious. This is a traditional breakfast called Nabon, Mr. DeSantos. It is filling and nutritious, though not what some might consider refined. Oh, so much food. It looks great. Please extend my thanks. I will indeed. He turned to leave, but I caught his sleeve by the cuff, just a tug, and he stopped, looking surprised. He glanced at his arm as if it had snagged on a rusty nail. Apparently, no one ever touched the butler. Whatever. The world nets, I supplied, quietly and with the gravity I felt for the situation. It was inevitable, he replied, straightening an imaginary wrinkle on his sleeve. We were told to expect it at any time. The main hubs have all been seized by the revolution. What are you going to do now? He looked down into my eyes, quizzically, and then challengingly, but chose another tactic for an answer. Your supply requests have been met, he breathed, as if speaking of forbidden acts in a holy temple. All save the one item, as I warned. When will you leave? 
I stabbed a sausage and held it up to my nose. It wasn't a type I was familiar with, and it had a strangely gamey odor. I didn't like that much, but it was here in front of me, and I was hungry. It tasted better than it looked, though it was spicy and very greasy. Is this animal protein? Yes, pork sausages, imported. I smelled it again and took another bite. I wasn't sure if I'd ever eaten animal protein before. I must have at some point, but as it was an inefficient way to feed human beings, it wasn't commonly encountered on stations or ships. The thing was different in texture and flavor from anything I'd eaten before. I could see people not caring for it, but it was exotic, and I decided to enjoy it. Did they serve animal protein last night, too? Yes. The main dish, I believe, was lamb. Wow! I didn't even notice. I smiled at the sheer strangeness of it, and he just raised his eyebrows in a bemused way. I plan to be gone by midday, I said quietly after swallowing the bite. You may not have the commissioner's leave by then, was his reply. It was his idea, actually. He thought about that for a few seconds, then regarded me for a few more. You do his bidding, then, like the rest of us. It was a statement, a challenge, one I deflected with a shrug. I have business of my own, as you well know. Am I supposed to refrain from it for the sake of a gesture? There are people relying on me. I am of two minds about you, Mr. de Santos. I looked up at him then, chewing my food slowly. He held my gaze, seemingly impassive and attentive as always. The same stab of fear I felt in considering this man the night before returned tenfold. Don't raise your hand against these people, Takir. I don't pretend to understand the politics of this world, but I didn't help those kids just to see them hurt. Do you understand? He said nothing. Am I clear to you? He continued to watch me with perfect composure. You declare protection, Mr. DeSantos, that seems a trifle... fantastic. And you offer a menace I find disquieting. Do you suppose that makes us even? He considered it, looking up at the ceiling in a distracted manner. So, this is the place we find ourselves. How curious. The butler's tone was quiet and respectful. It doesn't have to be. I have nothing but admiration for your people, your class, whatever you want to call it. I have sympathy for what you endure. From everything I've seen, Barlow is changing. You don't need to punish anyone here to hasten it along. He gave me a perfectly yielding bob of the head then, all slow and deliberate, and I could see that he had made up his mind. But in which way, and in what regard, I couldn't say. If you'll excuse me, Mr. DeSantos, he stated, checking a watch-like communication tool hanging from a chain at his waist, I have duties to which I must attend. The supplies will be in your suite within the hour. Please enjoy your day. I certainly shall mine. He gifted me with another smile, more sincere than before, and devoid of that unflappable mask. Like a muzzle flash in the dark, it was there, 
weird, striking, and nameless. And then he was gone. I played with net settings for a while as I ate, but the wider world was gone. In time, I just gave up, ladled out some of the grain mix into a smaller bowl, and settled in with a technical manual that I'd been meaning to study. Space air, so this is where you are. Sindra had entered through the big double doors, Benlay in tow. He and his family apparently lived furthest away and had, like several others from the party, elected to take advantage of the commissioner's hospitality. He looked sleepy and wore pajamas. Sindra was in a frumpy workout suit. I hadn't seen a gym in the house yet, but there had to be one. She noticed me looking at her drab clothes and just said, I was exercising. You should do the same. Why are you in here? I'm hungry, I replied, gesturing to the other bench. They sat and both immediately grabbed at my bread. One of the ladies from before came over and curtsied and dropped off a couple more settings. The platter had been over full and there was still plenty for all. Sindra poured some coffee for herself and her boyfriend. <gasps> they didn't serve it out for you? I said in a mock horrified tone. Shut up. I eat in here all the time. I just did not expect you. As my father's new crony, I thought you would be leaving it up in the dining room. Such abuse, I replied with a sigh, spreading a thick golden syrupy material onto some bread. I had no idea what it was, but it was sticky and very sweet. I'm not going to explain myself to you, dear. I shouldn't have to. You're just going to have to accept that I'm not the hanger-on you think I am. You have no idea what I think of you, Spacer. <laughs> Everyone knows what you think of them, I laughed. You've many gifts, Syndra, but subtlety is not one of them. Benley chuckled at this, too, and the girl just gave us both sour, dismissive looks that seemed to, nonetheless, imply that she enjoyed the conversation. The two of them spoke quietly for a while, in a kind of pigeon-low-speak, mixing English words and phrases freely with others that I didn't know. They glanced up at me several times, which made me uncomfortable. "'You're being rude,' I stated at last. "'As if you would know,' the girl replied, but Benley seemed upset. "'Where will you go now?' he asked me, interest and worry surprisingly evident. How do you know I'm going anywhere? I responded, hoping that some of Takir's poker face had rubbed off. Please, Sindra snorted and then took a bite of grain mix. Unimpressed, she poured some of the golden syrup on it. That seemed like a good idea, so I did the same. We hear things, the boy supplied, trying to sound mysterious, but then added, There is still fighting in the city, isn't there? I have to find my people. I answered lowly. Like you keep saying, it's not my world. The girl just made a disgusted sound and flipped her hand at me like I was a bothersome fly. Don't you do that, I said to her, irritation flashing, but my tone unchanged. You don't have the right to impose obligations on people. You only blur into my life or anyone else's if we want you there. That's how it works. Not in the Empire, Benlay argued. That's right, you're not, I said, but the parry was lost on him. Not so his girlfriend, 
and her face grew tight, even furious. I am not like my father, she hissed. I will learn about history, society, and political theory. I will help bring change to my world, to my entire nation. You alliance fools are all over the map. Some are free, some are slaves, some are slaves and think they are free. All people today need change. I put down my spoon, looked at the girl and gave her a slow clap, because I'm a jerk. Naturally, this angered her more, and she jumped up from the table, stalking off. Benley looked conflicted. I suspected he agreed with at least a measure of my cynicism, but his girlfriend clearly didn't. After about a minute of awkward silence, he excused himself and trotted off after her. I was enjoying a breakfast, every bit as filling as Takir had promised, and lots of excellent coffee. Aggravating a friend hadn't been on the menu when I sat down, but I'm nothing if not nimble. The woman who'd brought the bread came back, asking something I didn't understand. Uh, English? She just shook her head with a smile and called back to somebody in the kitchen. A young boy, no more than twelve or so, disengaged himself from the group at the stoves and came over at a jog. He had dark hair and a clear, freckled face and wore the hat and apron of one of Astrono's apprentices. His English wasn't great, but eventually I got the idea across that I'd like some sandwiches and a flask of coffee to go. This they then hastened to prepare and pack into a cooler bag, which I took with a short bow of my own that just made the kitchen laugh. To avoid another close and uncomfortable parade down the service hallway, I exited through the double doors. This dumped into a side corridor leading directly to the dining hall. There I found Hark Vernays, seated alone at the vast table, reading from a data pad. A uniformed servant stood at attention nearby, while another took away a plate. Good morning, Commissioner. He looked up from his reading, a little startled. Ah, dear Ejak, forgive me. I am unused to conversation at this hour, and I am a creature of habit. Please, sit. You found the kitchen more comfortable for first meal than this mighty cathedral of boring refinement, I dare say. And he laughed. You heard I was in there? Sindra told me. I think I made her angry. It is an easy thing to do, he assured me. So like her mother, that one. I only pray we do not drift apart in a similar fashion. She has her convictions. She is a child, he dismissed. But he added with unalloyed sadness, My child. I let that hang for a respectful moment, then sat near him in the same chair as the previous night. The guy at attention dashed forward to help me, but I waved him off in the casual manner I'd seen others here use, realizing in that moment how easy it would be to sink into this world of privilege. The bag of food was on the table next to me, and the older man looked at it curiously. Provisions, I supplied, and waited for the verdict. You wish to leave already? No, but I must. What we discussed? He held up a hand, then spoke a few words to the other men in the room, dismissing them. They backed out with twin bows, shutting the wide doors quietly.
He held up a metal and glass thing that looked like a stick pin, but its tiny, blinking light implied it was a device of some sort. I keyed my wrist comp to accept a data squirt, and moments later had acknowledgement in my eye view of a sizable file transfer. I looked to the commissioner quizzically. Everything I have on your people, he stated gravely. As of this morning, there has been no change. They are being held in what we now believe will be the new headquarters for the seculars. I'd like my rifle back. Is that possible? I may need it. Yes, yes, of course. I will see to it. He sipped his tea and stared into the cup. I sat unmoving for a bit, but then shook my head in worry and consternation. You and Syndra, all your friends, her friends, you need to leave this community. It is not a simple thing to abandon our lives here. The very act is political, and of course we are well guarded. The city was well guarded. I saw the vids. You had soldiers on every corner. There's no turning back the clock, Commissioner. This world will never again be the way it was. If you yourself can't go, then please find a safe place for those kids and send them there today. He looked tired then, with all his years and all his likely dark deeds throughout them, weighing like an anchor, like a successful man's memories. You are right, of course, he spoke after a bit, almost in a whisper. There is a certain military base. They would be safe there, as safe as anyone can be now. Okay, well, that's good. Your contact information is in this file? Not something that goes to one of your assistants. When I call, I'll need to talk to you and no one else. You will call, he exclaimed with sudden animation, with frightened clarity. Tell me this. Say it aloud. Say you will move the world for my child. You have saved her life. She is under your protection, Ijogdo Santos. I order this of you. I implore it. I implore it. He trailed off into a sorrowful whisper, speaking in what might have been Seishan. To me it sounded like a prayer. I had no right to promise anything, not to him, not to his spoiled daughter, not to anyone but my captain and crewmates. Because I was a spacer. My home, my heart, my profession, they were in an empty place filled with the universe itself. And nothing held a greater draw or had more power over me. Certainly nothing found on the frozen, blood-stained face of a well like this. And yet, a man who maybe once held the power of life and death over the masses of this world sat next to me now, desperately making bargains with a stranger, whispering bargains to his deity, securing bargains in his heart with the very fates that caressed this house like those cold, gentle breezes outside. An old man, helpless in the face of his might, hostage to his love for his only child. His forearm rested upon a delicate, lacy placemat, and I touched him gently. He looked up with haunted eyes, the sins of a lifetime, I think, vastly outweighing to him in that moment 
any happy endings that may have been owed to House Vernays. You have my word, I heard myself saying. No matter what happens, I'll get Syndra out. You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on soundcloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.